in respect for the reading of the Word. We're going to be in the book of Acts again today, chapter 16, verses 11 through 15. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. So, setting sail for Troas, we made direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the, of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you had judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. May God bless the reading of his word. Praise be to God. Still getting the hang of the stand-up, sit-down thing, so you did great. It was your, it was your hit class for the day. Um. Real quickly, uh, let me just encourage you a couple of things. I was talking to Jonathan, and um, if, if you've been coming for a week or two or maybe a month or two, you've noticed that uh, we started having a lot more kids coming from the communities that we've been reaching out to. And uh, it's such a, I mentioned last week, it's a huge answer to prayer. But I wanted to encourage you, every single one of you, uh, whether you've been coming here for a week or a year, on Sunday mornings to look for ways to engage them and encourage them, let them know that you're happy they're here, that they're not a burden on us, um, but that we, uh, we're just, we just love them. And um, if you could just do that, go out of your way. If you see any of those kids, just give them a hug and, and welcome them, tell them that you're glad they're here. On, on, and second, I guess the second thing I would say with that is we need more help with those kids, because we went from like five to 15 last week. So it's, it's amazing, but we need more hands, okay? So if you are not serving yet and you're looking for a team, let me encourage you to be a part of that team. Sunday mornings, um, we, we have the older kids classroom. Um, and they're teaching them, and they just need some extra hands down there. We also have the 7 to 11 classroom. We'd love uh, people to help out with that as well. And also on Saturdays, if you can't do Sundays or like Sundays you're already serving somewhere else and you've got a free Saturday morning, um, Saturday mornings, we actually are in their neighborhood every single week playing with them. It's super chill, super easy. I think it's 10 to noon every Saturday. Um, so if you would like to do any of that, if you would like to get involved on that team of just serving, loving those kids, there's a QR code in, in front of you. You can scan the QR code um, and, and, and it says serve now, and you'll see the box on there. Fill it out, and please just get involved. It would be awesome if you're not serving yet to jump in in that way. Yeah, thankful for what God's doing. That's all I'm going to say about that. But um, I'm also thankful that y'all are here and excited to get into the reading of the word and the preaching of the word today with you as well. In 1995, uh, Yellowstone National Park was really struggling. And uh, the deer population was totally out of control. And since there weren't any predators around, as many of you know, uh, these deer could graze wherever they wanted without any fear of, of being eaten. And so the result was that the grass in the meadows had been almost totally grazed and the rivers had 
um, started to uh, erode a shore around the rivers. It started to erode and, and they started to trickle and meander off and get shallower and shallower. And so the Yellowstone uh, National Park was really struggling. But then in 1995, a conservationist came up with this bold and uh, really controversial idea. And a lot of the ranchers didn't like it because the idea was to reintroduce wolves into the park. The reason that they tried to get rid of the wolves in the first place is because they were eating the ranchers' stock. Um, so it was a little controversial, but they figured out that if they could get some of the wolves in there, that that might control the deer population. And if they could control the deer population, then maybe the national park would survive. And so they passed this, this, uh, this um, idea, I guess, and they went up to Canada. They captured a bunch of gray wolves. They brought them back down to the national park and they just let them, let them free in the national park. Um, the impact, though, of just a, a small number of wolves was absolutely staggering. Now, I have a before and after picture of the park to show you a little bit of the difference that these wolves made. You can see the one picture of 1991, and you can see how there's really no vegetation hardly at all alongside of the river. And then if you look to the, the right, trees have grown up and everything's different. Listen to how the National Geographic described it. They said, first, of course, the wolves killed some of the deer, but it wasn't a major thing because there weren't that many wolves and they didn't kill that many deer. But they radically changed the behavior of the deer. The deer started avoiding certain parts of the park, the places where they could be trapped most easily, um, particularly the valleys and the gorges, and immediately those places started to regenerate. In some areas, the height of the trees quintupled in just six years. Bare valley sides quickly became forests of aspens and willows and cottonwood. And as soon as that happened, the birds started moving back in. The number of songbirds and migratory birds started to increase greatly, as did the number of beavers, because beavers like to eat trees and beavers like wolves are ecosystem engineers. They create little niches for other species and the dams they built in the rivers provided habitats for otters and muskrats and ducks and fish and reptiles and amphibians. On top of that, the wolves killed the coyotes, which meant the number of rabbits and mice began to rise as well. And that meant more hawks and weasels and foxes and badgers began to appear as well. Eventually, even the ravens and the bald eagles came into the region because they could feed on the carcasses that the wolves had left behind in their kills. And then on top of all of that, since the shrubs had been able to grow, Without any of the deer's interference, the, the park was now stocked with berries. And so the bears started to move in because bears love berries. And that was great because the bears just reinforced what the wolves were already doing with the deer. And they killed a few here and there, but really they just made them scared. Here's where it got really interesting though. According to the National Geographic, the wolves actually ended up changing the behavior of the rivers they began to meander less. There was less erosion. The channels narrowed and more pools formed, more ripple sections, all of which was great for wildlife habitat. The rivers changed in response to the wolves. And the reason was the regenerating forests stabilized the banks so that they collapsed less often. And the rivers became more fixed in their course. And this is the point. Though the wolves were small in number, they transformed not just the ecosystem of the Yellowstone National Park, this huge area of land, but also its physical geography. It went from struggling to flourishing, as you can see. It went from dying to thriving, and all because of the impact of a group of wolves. 
I couldn't help but think about this because it's, it's a viral video. I'm sure most of you have seen it. Uh, I think it was a TED Talk at one point. I could not help but think about the wolves at Yellowstone this past week as I thought about Paul and his three friends entering the continent of Europe for the first time and introducing this brand new group of people to the gospel of Jesus and, and the impact that they had on that continent. Their impact was just as dramatic as the wolves in Yellowstone, if not a hundred times more. Tom Holland's incredible book, Dominion, How Christianity Remade the World, documents this over and over and over again as he describes the impact that Paul and his band of friends had on Europe. I don't have time to show you all of the incredible insights um, that Christianity had on science and philosophy and law and so much more. But one of the most important things that Christianity did when it went into Europe, as, as Holland reports, is that it dramatically changed the way the world thought about human rights. Um, for example, the human rights that we enjoy today were unheard of and even laughable in Greek and Roman culture. The poor were overlooked. Women were treated as property. Slaves were misused and exploited at the whims of their masters. There was no such thing as intrinsic value there was no such thing as personal agency. 20% of the Roman Empire were slaves and they could be used for whatever the master wanted. In fact, Holland puts it like this. The heroes of the Iliad, favorites of the gods, golden and predatory, had scorned the weak and downtrodden. So too for all the honor that Julian paid them. Julian's the last pagan emperor. So too had the philosophers, meaning the philosophers hated the weak and downtrodden as well. The starving deserved no sympathy. Beggars were best rounded up and deported. Pity risked undermining a wise man's self-control. Only fellow citizens of good character, who through no fault of their own had fallen on evil days, might conveniently merit assistance. In other words, your value was wrapped up in your utility and your worth hinged on your performance. And if you were in a bad situation, because you did something wrong or you made a bad decision or you were just born in that status, you deserved no help at all. That was the society that Europe was entrenched in. But the introduction of the gospel turned all of that upside down because it said, since everyone is an image bearer of God, women are to be seen as more than just property to be used and abused by their husbands. The poor are now to be seen as more than just problems that need to be solved and eradicated. Slaves are now to be seen as more than just empty vessels to be exploited by their masters. And all of this was unheard of at the time. Pagans despised the weak. They despised the poor. But Christians poured themselves out for the weak and the poor. Pagans despised the widow and the orphan. Christians sacrificed for them. Pagans saw women as second-class citizens, but Christians saw them as co-heirs and co-equals. The message of Jesus that Paul and his friends would bring into Europe for the first time in the history of the world was that there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ, Galatians 3, 28. As a result of that, and so much more, as Tom Holland points out in his book, Dominion, I, I highly recommend it if you like history, the masses flocked to Christianity and the entire Roman Empire was turned upside down in less than three centuries. 
The entire ecosystem of Europe was transformed by the presence of four men, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. The world has literally never been the same. This is what's so cool to me. This isn't what we're talking about today, by the way. This, I just want to give you some background. Um, you know the thing that I love about our passage today? One of the things. It shows us that in God's perfect wisdom, the first person to ever hear and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ on European soil was a woman. Amen. I know it doesn't seem like much today because you've been able to vote for so long. This was a big deal. The second, the second person to ever be documented conversion on European soil wasn't just a woman. She was a slave. That's next week. It's not an accident. Isn't that beautiful? The God of heaven and earth is about to bring a little bit more of his heavenly kingdom to bear on earth, and he's going to do it by bringing in the poor and lifting up the women and setting the captives free. Everything is about to get flipped upside down, and to kick it all off, he starts with this woman named Lydia. Now, I want us to look at Lydia's story, but I want to do more than that because her story is much bigger than just hers. Uh, In fact, Lydia's story is actually your story. And it is my story as well, because her story is the story of how God always leads people to himself. Our situations, our contexts, our backgrounds might all look different, but what we see happen in Lydia's life is what happens in everyone's life every single time someone is brought to Christ. And so if you have a testimony, if you have a story of Jesus saving you, Lydia's story is your story. If you don't have that story yet, my prayer is that you will, maybe even today. And so as I tell you her story, which is that that's all we're going to do today, I want you to see your your story in in this as well. I'm going to show you two things, and and, and you'll see where we're going to go in a minute. The first thing I want to show you is this. In God's providence, he always uses circumstances to lead people to himself. So there's no such thing as a coincidence. We talked about this last week a lot, and I'm going to talk about it more again today. And I know it raises questions about sovereignty and responsibility, and we'll talk about it a little bit too, because that's a big question. But when it comes to the rescue of the lost, there's no such thing as coincidence. There's no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as serendipity, even though it's a great movie from the early 2000s. There is only the providence of God. That's it. So again, verse 11 says this explicitly, if you can read between the lines, look back at verse 11. Paul and his friends sailed straight through Samothrace. I think that's how you say it. And if you've been around the Bible for long enough, you know that nothing is ever in the Bible by accident. Everything in the Bible matters. Every little detail means something. Nothing's wasted, random, or out of place. And in this case, that little bit of information tells us that the wind was literally at their backs as they were sailing. And if you do some research into the geography and how many miles it was, you realize that they sailed 156 miles in two days when normally it would have taken five days. Okay, so the wind is at their backs. They sailed straight through. In two days, they knock out this journey. That means they got to Philippi just a few days before a Sabbath. 
And this wasn't an accident. It wasn't luck. This was the providence of God. They're there for a couple of days and all of a sudden it's Sabbath. Now, normally Paul would have gone to a synagogue and he would have reasoned with the Jewish men. He would always start with Jewish men in the synagogue. And then when they tried to beat him up, he'd move on to other people. But he always started in the synagogue because those were his people. But Philippi was so lost, there was no synagogue. Now, we actually know from history that if a city had 10 Jewish people in it, they had to have a synagogue. So that means Philippi had less than 10 Jewish men in it. That means they had less than 10 God-fearing men in it. There is no synagogue, but they just so happened to hear that on the Sabbath, a mile and a half outside of the city, there's a group of women gathering to recognize Sabbath and pray. None of this is coincidental. Maybe these women were a mile and a half outside of the city for protection. Maybe they just wanted privacy. Again, they don't have a lot of status in this society. There aren't a bunch of godly men around them. They're probably going to be harassed the whole time. So they go a mile and a half outside the city where they can pray. They've got their copies of Hebrew scripture. They're worshiping the Hebrew God. Again, none of this is an accident or a coincidence. Now, one of the women who's there by the river is a, a woman named Lydia. Verse 14 tells us that she's from the city of Thyatira and a seller of purple goods and that she is a worshiper of God. That means she's the worshiper of Yahweh Elohim, the God of the Old Testament. She has the Hebrew scripture. She's converted from paganism to Judaism. And now she's practicing Sabbath by the river with a group of other women. This is what's so incredible with me. Just track with me because this is gonna blow your mind. This is, oh God, he's so cool. The first person to ever hear and respond to the gospel on European soil wasn't just a woman. She was a woman from Asia. Not just Asia. The exact region that Paul was trying to get into and the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ said, no, you're not getting into that region. No, you're not taking the gospel there. And so he's hanging out in Truss and he gets a vision of a man. Come to find out the man is a woman from Asia who's in Macedonia. And so God says, no, over here, you can't go into Asia because I got this Asian girl in Macedonia and I need you to go find her. Isn't that crazy? Oh, it's so cool. She's evidently become so wealthy because this is how she gets into to Macedonia. She's a seller of purple it's from her region. Kings wear purple, rich people wear purple. It's kind of like our version of cars or Rolexes. Like this is how you showed off your wealth back in the day. You wore purple, it meant something. So she sells purple. She's in Europe selling purple and she's become so wealthy. Evidently, she's got a mansion in Philippi. We don't know much about her household. We don't know if she was married. We don't know if she had kids. We definitely know she had a lot of servants. We know somebody was living in her house because she ends up getting saved. You'll see in a minute and her whole household gets saved. We don't know if that's like servants or husband and kids. We have no idea what that means. But none of this is an accident. None of this is luck. None of this is a coincidence. What is it? Can you just say the providence of God with me? The providence of God. I want you to get used to the providence of God and fall in love with the providence of God, okay? From the date to the time, to the location, to the weather, to the wind, to the culture of Philippi, to the business, to everything else, God is over all of it. Nothing falls outside of the scope 
of his sovereign rule. He's moving and he's directing even in the smallest of details so that he can lead people to himself. As the old hymn goes, his wisdom is sublime, his heart profoundly kind. God never is before his time and never is behind. He's always working and it's always perfect. I couldn't help but think about how I've seen that play out in some of your lives here at this church. We got a lot of baby Christians in this church. It's so exciting to be your pastor. Man, it's so cool. The OG, we call him, we call him the OG of South End, Big Stew. He's not in here right now. He's down with the kids, um, so he won't be embarrassed. Um, you might not know this, but two years ago, like right now, there are about 150, 20-somethings in this room. Two years ago, there were like 60 people total, okay? Um, and there weren't that many 20-year-olds. We actually had people leaving our church because there weren't a bunch of 20-year-olds, and they wanted people in their same stage of life, because that's what we do in America. We want people like us. It, it's okay. That, that wasn't a bash. That was a bash. Okay. Um, so so we, had, we had no one here. Um, we were like, I don't know what God's doing at this church. Like, is, are people going to come? Are people going to get saved? And Stuart moved into one of the duplexes right behind the church so he could literally see the church out of his back window. And, and he moved there because in his mind, he, he was going to come to Charlotte, he was going to come to South End, and he was going to live the lifestyle that he had seen in all the movies, which is just like live the good life, go after pleasure, all of the things that a young man would want. And he's like, I'm going to do that, and it's going to be awesome. And so he did all of that and found out that none of it satisfied. And so he spiraled sort of out of control. It's, it's that rock bottom hopelessness. Maybe some of you have felt it. Maybe some of you feel it right now. It's the rock bottom hopelessness when you've been chasing after your vision of the good life and you attain everything you thought was gonna lead to the good life and then you realize it's not it. And so there's a certain kind of hopelessness that you get because then you're like, well, now what? Like, this is why they call it disenchanted fame. Like, it, you get fame, and then you, you're not happy. You get money, you're not satisfied. You get all the girls, well, there has to be something more. It's like Tom Brady after he won his fourth Super Bowl. He's like, what? there's got to be something more to life, you know? And so, so Stu, big Stu, is struggling. He's, he's spiraling in depression. Nobody actually calls him big Stu. That's just, <laughs> it's, just because, it's just because he's not in here right now, and I can call him whatever I want. Um, he is a big guy, though. Uh, but he hits rock bottom, and um, he looks at, out his window about that time. He looks out his window, and he sees this church. And he's like, well, I guess I should Google the church. He Googled the church to make sure we weren't some kind of weird cult. And uh, thankfully, we're not a weird cult. And um, so he came, praise God. So he came in, and um, he met Jesus. And uh, it's, it's super cool because you, you've heard his testimony if you've been here for more than a year, but his testimony is that he moved into that duplex so that he could walk to his favorite bar, but now he knows that God moved him to that duplex so that he could walk to life and meet him. That's the providence of God. We make decisions, we take action, we walk, we live our lives, and the whole time God's like, you got no idea. <laughs> you have no idea what I have in store for you. God used circumstances to lead people to himself. That's what happened in the life of Lydia. That's what happened in my life as well. If you are a believer, that's what happened in your life as well. Guys, I can't help but think that there are some of you in this room right now 
who are experiencing the exact same thing in this moment. You might think you're in Charlotte for business. You know, you might think you're in Charlotte for school. You might think you're here today because you're in school and you heard there were donuts afterwards. You might think that you're here for a girl or a guy. Maybe, maybe you're in Charlotte because all of your other plans fell through. <laughs> you know, this was your last resort. And, and you don't know, like you, you think you know why you're here and, and you think you have an idea of why you're in this room. And I'm telling you right now, God's got a, a bigger dream. He's got a bigger vision for your life than you could even fathom. And if you don't know Christ, it starts with opening your eyes to the reality that he is there. Not only is he there, but he made you and he knows you and he loves you so much that he gave his life for you so that he could redeem you from your sin, so that he could rescue you from death, so that he could reconcile you to God, so that he could restore new life in you for all eternity. He wants to start there. That's his plan for your life. And maybe you didn't even know why you were in Charlotte. Today, I'm telling you, this is why you're here, so that you can hear that message and receive it. Some of you are in this room today because his hand is on your life. And right now he is drawing you to himself. Just like Lydia. You're not here by accident. Nothing happens for no reason. And his providence, God is leading you to himself. And so again, today, I just want to call you to respond to that. That's the first thing I want, I want you to see. In his providence, God always uses circumstances to lead people to himself. Second, in his power, he always uses faithful witnesses to lead people to himself. Look back at verse 14. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Two things I need you to see here. First, the Lord is the only one who has the power to open the hearts of unbelievers. In other words, the prison doors of sin and death that our heart is currently locked in can only be opened from the outside. And the only person who has the key is the one who conquered sin and death, the one we just sang about. So if we are spiritually dead, and the Bible says that every single one of us are born spiritually dead, Ephesians 2, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead people can't do anything. You know, you're not like just a little halfway dead. You're not just a little sick, like you're dead. Dead people cannot bring themselves back to life. Since that's true, we have to have someone who can come and regenerate us, who can bring us back to life. I'll never forget sharing the gospel with a friend in my old building in Uptown. Uh, he, he had actually studied religion in college, which I love it when I find somebody who studied like this stuff, because this is what I studied in college. This is what I studied in grad school. Like I, I love these conversations. And uh, he had sort of settled. Uh, my, my first question was like, where'd you settle? You know, where'd you land? And he was like, I didn't really land anywhere. You know, I'm, I'm kind of like in the agnostic pool. I kind of think that there's a mountain and all, and all the religions are a road up the mountain and they're all gonna eventually lead to the same peak at some point, you know, or another. And it's all kind of the same. And I was like, sweet, let's talk, you know, some more. Um, and uh, so we, were, we, we had many conversations over the months. Um, and uh, my job was actually to throw a party. Caroline and I threw a party there every week. And so we were just interacting with these people every single week, week in and week out. And it was amazing. We made some great friends there. So one night we're at Whole Foods and we're just talking for hours. Um, 
talking about everything you could possibly imagine as it relates to Christianity. And he was asking all the questions, the sovereignty of God, the problem of evil, the veracity of scripture, the exclusivity of Jesus, you know, all of the big, the big questions and on and on it went. Conversation was going amazing. Because again, like I love this stuff. This is what I studied. It's what I've dedicated my life to. I had good answers for every single one of his questions. And finally, after a few hours, his eyes lit up and they got really wide. And I was like, this guy gets it. He sees it. There's no more questions. He's ready to go. His eyes light up and he, he, he lets out this deep sigh. And then he sits back in his chair and he's just quiet for a while. And I'm like, this is the moment, you know? I can't wait. Like, what's he going to say? And it was quiet for quite a while. And I'm like, you know, sipping my, my drink. And uh, finally, after a long silence, he looks at me. He's like, Ben, everything you said makes perfect sense. But unless God does something supernatural in my mind, I just can't believe it. And I was like, I know. And that's what I'm praying for. Because that's what this says. If your heart does not respond to the word, if there isn't any impulse within you that finds the gospel of Jesus compelling, if I'm talking and you're trying really hard not to sleep right now because it's the most boring thing you've ever heard, well, I, I take some blame. I'm sorry. It's, it's not the message though. Do not take that lightly. Get on your knees and cry out to God for him to do something supernatural in your mind and something supernatural in your heart. Don't ask him for money. It will not matter. Don't ask him for a promotion. Don't ask him for a spouse. Don't ask him for a good life. Ask him for the miracle of regeneration in your heart. Ask him to give you the appetite. Ask him to give you the desire. Ask him to open your eyes so that you can see and so that it makes sense because that's what you need more than anything else. Matthew 7 puts it like this, ask and it will be given to you. That's not talking about your Tesla. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you for everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks God finds. To him who knocks, the door will be opened. I talked to a guy this past week. He's in this room. I won't point him out. I can only, make, I can only call people out if they're not in the room. Um, and he did this. And he asked God, take away my doubt. Give me faith. Help me believe. Show me that it's true. Show me that you love me. And he's telling me his story with this huge smile on his face. And he's laughing because he's full of joy because Jesus isn't a liar. And Jesus answered his prayer. And he saved him. Scott. The first thing you and I need to see here is that God is sovereign. And, and, and you and I, apart from Christ, are dead. And so unless we experience the sovereign grace of God in our lives, we cannot respond to the gospel of Jesus. We need someone to rescue us from the outside. The only person who can rescue us is Jesus himself. The Lord is the only one who has the power to open the hearts of unbelievers. The second thing, though, is just as important. It's going to get confusing. Don't worry. 
His power to save is always worked out through faithful witnesses who preach the gospel of salvation. Verse 14 says, the Lord opened her heart, that's the first half, to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now that's a really interesting phrase there because in in the original language, the the verb tense is what Paul kept on saying. This wasn't a one-time conversation. She didn't believe right away. It took a long time to convince her and to reason with her. Listen to how Romans 10 describes what Paul was doing. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach goods, good news. Now, why is that beautiful? Why are your feet beautiful when you preach good news about Jesus if he's the only one who can save? Why does he even need you? Confused yet? God's power to save people is always worked in and through faithful witnesses who preach the gospel of salvation. Let me explain. Um, in, in Lydia's case, of course, it took a while, like I just mentioned. Um, Paul had to, had to walk with her over time. But what we see in that is that when, when, when Paul shared the gospel for the first time by that riverside, and all of those women were there, and, and he shares the gospel, and, and Lydia didn't believe initially, um, he didn't just abandon her. She's hungry, she's searching, she's already left the pagan gods of her family, she's worshiping the God of the Bible, but she's just not sure about this crucified carpenter from Nazareth yet. She likes Yahweh, but she's not convinced that Jesus can actually be Yahweh incarnate. But Paul's response is not, well, I guess God hasn't opened up your heart, and so I'm just gonna move on to someone else. I'm gonna move on to a new person. I'm gonna move on to a new city. You know, you made it halfway, you're worshiping the God of the Bible, but since you don't want Jesus, I'm just gonna assume that he's not gonna work in your life. You know, he doesn't say anything like that. He just keeps on talking to her and reasoning with her over a period of time. And as Lydia listens, as Lydia listens, as Paul keeps on talking, God starts to open her heart and soften her heart so that she can receive it. Guys, this is one of the great mysteries of salvation. And it is a mystery. Let me just tell you, mysteries cannot be understood. I'm gonna do my best. Reason isn't powerful enough to save anyone. And yet, God uses reason to open the hearts of unbelievers. You and I are not powerful enough to save anyone. And yet, God and his infinite wisdom has chosen to use you and me to save people. In other words, God is sovereign in salvation, and yet you and I are responsible in the process. I love how John Stott put it. He said, although the message was Paul's, the saving initiative was God's. Paul's preaching was not effective in itself. The Lord worked through it. And listen, the Lord's work was not in itself direct. He chose to work through Paul's preaching. It is always the same. They go hand in hand. This is, this is how I would sum it up. This is what I want you to see. God is powerful enough to save anyone in any way he wants. Do you believe that? Okay, that's how powerful God is. But he has chosen to 
always work through faithful witnesses of the gospel. He could save in any way he wants, but the way that he has chosen is through you and through me. He has not chosen to save people by sending angels or causing rocks to talk. He has chosen to send beautiful feet as messengers of the gospel. That is how he has chosen to work. They go hand in hand. Now that raises a big question, doesn't it? In fact, this is one of the biggest questions that I get as a pastor. What about all the people around the world who have never heard the gospel? Like what's gonna happen to them? If God always leads people to himself through faithful witnesses, what happens if there are no faithful witnesses in a city or a region or a country? Are they just doomed to an eternity separated from God? The answer, of course, is no. But why is it no? Guys, the story of Lydia shows us why the answer is no. The story of Lydia shows us that it doesn't matter how much God has to intervene. If there is anyone anywhere in the world who is seeking after him, who is hungry for him, he is going to step in and send them a witness. Every single time. That's what this story is about. The Asian girl is hanging out in Greece and she's hungry. She's left the pagan gods. She's seeking Yahweh, but she doesn't know the Messiah. She doesn't know Jesus, but she's practicing Sabbath. She's saying the prayers. She's reading the scripture. She's trying to obey Torah. She's at the riverside and God knows all of it. And he sees all of it. And so the apostle Paul is trying to get into Asia Minor. Then he can't. He tries to get into Galatia. Then he can't. Then he has a vision and God knows I've got someone who's ready for you. I'm going to open her heart. I need you to go. Reminds me of a story I've got to tell you. I can't give you the details because if I did, this guy's life would be in in danger. Uh, But I met a man not too long ago who's living in a country uh, that overseas it's totally closed off to the West and totally closed off to Christianity. I was talking to him on the phone about his journey and about how God had called him to this country. And I'll be honest with you, it was absolutely wild. God gives the most dramatic calls uh, to people who, or I guess, yeah, he speaks in the most dramatic ways to people who have the most dramatic calls in their life. So if you want to hear God in a really radical way, do something radical. Um, he's not gonna, he's not gonna do some crazy stuff if you're just, you know, it's okay. I'm not, again, this, the more you suffer, the more you experience God. That's the principle. Okay. So my, my friend is driving in his car one day and all of a sudden he's driving in his car and out of nowhere, he sees a vision through his windshield. And the vision is nothing more than the name of this country in giant black font. So he's driving. I don't know how he didn't get in an accident when this happened, but he sees this this vision. He's never heard of this country before in his life. So he goes home and he Googles it. (laughs) And, And he goes to his wife and he's like, I think we're supposed to take a trip to this country maybe. I'm not really sure. Um, long story short, he finds out that 0.3% of this country knows Jesus. 0.3%. If he's caught, and he will be caught, he told me on the phone, he knows he's going to be caught. It's just a matter of time. When he is caught, 
he will be punished. And yet, in the providence of God, and I can't give any more details because, again, it's, it's, I don't have permission to do that for his own safety. But he didn't just take a trip there. He moved there. And he lives there now with his family. And even though he knows any day could be his last day of freedom, he's already interacted with hundreds, if not thousands of people since the last time I talked to him. People that God knew were ready people that God knew were hungry, people that God knew needed him. And he's just driving along, chilling in his car, and he sees a vision, you're going to this country because I've got someone there. Guys, there is not a single person in the world who is not seeking after God, who is not hungry for God, who will be left to the wayside by God. He will send someone to be a witness. Now, maybe some of you in this room are supposed to be that witness. You know, maybe some of you have a call in your life that is bigger than Charlotte. I, I think I'm called to Charlotte till I die, but that could change. I could be driving home, and on my way home, I could see some country I never heard of. And then I'm going to have to start praying, and you're going to have to start looking for a new pastor. I don't know. But my point is that you, some of you in this room are called to go. But whether or not you're called to go to some crazy country overseas or you're just called to go to your backyard, or you're just called to go to your next door neighbor, every single one of us is called to be a witness of Christ, to be a faithful witness of Christ to those who are around us so that they can see the beauty of God and the goodness of God and be drawn back into a relationship with him. The story of Lydia shows us that when God has people who are hungry and who are seeking him, he will be faithful to send faithful witnesses to them. You need to be aware of that. And so honestly, guys, when you're, when you're going about your work, when you're driving to the supermarket, when you're driving to Home Depot, when you're going to the cafe, what if you prayed the whole way, God, show me someone who's ready. Spirit, lead me to someone who's hungry. I want you to guide me. I'm not going to see people as objects. I'm not going to see people as obstacles. I'm going to see people as eternal souls in desperate need of you. Show me someone who's ready. And then when he shows you, you just open your mouth. Now how he shows you, you just talk to everyone. <laughs> and then you find him. It's a numbers game. I'm not going to lie. God is powerful enough to save anyone in any way he wants but he always chooses to use faithful witnesses for the gospel. Are you a faithful witness? If you're a believer, you, you haven't just been saved, you have been called. Every disciple is a missionary. You haven't just been reconciled to God, you have been commissioned as an ambassador of God. God making his appeal through you. This is how he does it. And so if we don't speak, they don't hear. And if they don't hear, how can they believe? And so we need to be speaking. Someone in your life needs to hear the message of Christ this week. And I'm asking the Holy Spirit that he would show you who that is right, even right now. Someone in your family needs to hear the message of Christ. Someone in your dorm, someone on your team, someone in your office, someone in your neighborhood. How beautiful are your feet who preach good news. Guys, may that be said of you and me today, this week. And let me again just call out to, to those of you who have no idea why you're at church today, but you're here. God's got a call on your life. He's got a dream for your life. He's got a plan for your life. It's bigger than you can imagine. 
And right now he's leading you to himself. Respond to that call. Would you stand with me? And let's respond in prayer. Guys, if there's a, a promise that you need to believe, ask the spirit for help. If there's an action that you need to take, tell the Lord, talk to him. If there's a sin you need to confess, confess it. If you need to confess it to uh, one of us, it's not because you need one of us to absolve you. It's just because you need some prayer so that you can be healed. We'll be up front during these next two songs. We'd love to pray uh, with you and for you. There is no judgment. There is no condemnation. I can promise you, you have not done anything that I have not heard before. We will pray with you and we will pray for you so that you can be healed. And if you would like to, to, to come to Christ, maybe you have no idea what that means. You'd like to put your trust in him. We'd love to explain that to you, with you. We, we'll be praying. We'll be up here ready uh, to pray with you. So I'll just invite you to bow your heads. And after we pray for a little bit, we'll go to the table.